Toronto, Canada, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. And welcome to the Audio Imaginarium. My name is Richard Serrett. You found us. This is the one and only Conspiracy Show heard throughout Ontario, Quebec, and in about uh, 28 states, I think, on AM740 Zoomer Radio, around the world on zoomerradio.ca, and of course the podcast, and our growing list of affiliates in the U.S. And we now have a new affiliate we'd like to welcome, KINXFM, Great Falls, Montana. That is our first affiliate in Montana, the Treasure State. I'd like to know why it's called the Treasure State. If there's anyone listening, if you want to send me an email or, or uh, say hi uh, on Twitter, at Richard Serrett, why is Montana known as the, as, as the Treasure State? In any event, uh, great to welcome KINXFM, Great Falls, Montana, to the uh, Conspiracy Show, and thank you for adding the Conspiracy Show to your weekly program schedule. Uh, I want to thank also... Uh, I've been uh, really negligent in doing this. I want to thank Chris Whitting and the team at Syndication Networks in Chicago for all of their hard work and uh, their their faith in, in me and this program and their continued uh, loyalty to this program. I really appreciate everything you're doing for The Conspiracy Show. So Chris and everyone at Syndication Networks, thank you. I had a wonderful time with Jim Mars last night on Coast to Coast discussing ancient aliens and the Illuminati. Uh, I also spoke with uh, cryptozoologist Dr. Carl Schuker about gigantic spiders. (laughs) Notice I didn't say I enjoyed our conversation. (laughs) He's a wonderful man, very knowledgeable, but let's face it, giant spiders are not something I really want to contemplate. Uh, however, we, uh, we had an interesting chat. Uh, but, but Jim Mars, uh, his book, Our Occulted History, if you're interested in the role that ancient, uh, aliens or ancient astronauts, um, may have played in the development of human civilization, that's a great book. Uh, which also deals with the cover-up, Our Occulted History by Jim Mars. Uh, and we talked about, uh, one of the things, interesting things that Jim had to say was, if, I never thought of this before. We were talking about how human civilization developed, the role of ETs, going back to the Sumerian civilization. And he mentioned something I thought was very interesting. We all, you know, the development of wine and how we, we, we came to invent, if you will, wine. Makes sense. It's fairly simple, right? Some grapes were lying out in the sun. They got a little fermented. Somebody accidentally drank the juice and said, hey, this is kind of good, and they replicated the process. But think about beer. Beer is very complicated. There are a number of ingredients. You've got barley, you've got hops, and you've got to ferment that. That didn't happen by accident. And uh, as it turns out, in the, the, the Sumerian cuneiforms, which have been translated, according to their creative, their creation legend, the Anunnaki gave mankind the recipe, if you will, for beer. Uh, so uh, that was an interesting discussion. And, and speaking of which, uh, one of the the favorite uh, um, uh, Twitter, uh, Twitter rather Twitter uh, applications that I follow is called Unexplained Pictures, and they've just tweeted a remarkable picture of a 2,500 year old artifact found in Istanbul, which many believe 
depicts a rocket ship. And uh, I've, uh, I've just retweeted it, actually, at Richard Serrett. I want you to, to check it out. Let me know what you think. It's a photograph of some sort of a, a stone carving. And it looks, for all the world, like a rocket ship. Keeping in mind, this thing is 2,500 years old. Again, I've retweeted it at Richard Serrett. Uh, check it out. Let me know what you think. You can uh, email me through the website or say hello on Twitter at Richard Serrett. Uh, Joel Skousen from World Affairs Brief is going to check in here after the first break uh, to discuss the shadowy world backstage in the Global Theater. We'll talk about the fallout from the Michael Brown shooting in Ferguson, Missouri. Things are starting to quiet down there, thankfully. Uh, the grisly beheading, of course, of American journalist James Foley at the hands of ISIS. And we'll also talk about the, the latest developments in the Ebola outbreak in Liberia, Sierra Leone, Nigeria, Congo. It's starting to spread now in Africa. Uh, before that, however, for the last several weeks, uh, you've heard me discussing a very um, special event that I'm very proud uh, to be organizing. It's called Follow the Truth, the Conspiracy Show Summit, and I'm bringing some amazing speakers to Oshawa's Regent Theatre on November the 16th for an all-day conference-style event. It's a very intimate, exclusive engagement, and for the next several weeks, I'm going to take a few minutes at the beginning of each show to introduce you to our scheduled speakers. And I- I'm looking forward to presenting all of these remarkable people, but I want you to meet someone very special right now. His story, if if you attend... Follow the truth. His story is going to make you, it's going to inspire you. It's going to make you cry. It's going to make you laugh. It's going to make you think of some pretty wild possibilities. Dr. Ronald Mallet is a professor of physics at the University of Connecticut, best known for his research on time travel. In fact, he's working on a theoretical time machine. He's also the author of Time Traveler, a scientist's personal mission to make time travel a reality, which I believe has been optioned by director Spike Lee. So Dr. Mallet's life could be up on the big screen at some point. In any event, I'm very excited and privileged to be able to, to share the stage with uh, Donald, or Ronald Mallet at Follow the Truth, the Conspiracy Show Summit, November 16th in Oshawa. Dr. Ronald Mallet, welcome to the Conspiracy Show. How are you? Fine, Richard. How are you? I'm very well. And... Um, I don't, I don't want you to obviously, uh, we can't in five minutes, uh, you know, discuss what you're going to be presenting at the, uh, at the uh, Follow the Truth Summit. But just uh, for people who have not heard you speak and are not familiar with your story, just give us a tiny little glimpse about what, what you'll be presenting. Yeah, right, Richard. You're, you're absolutely right. I won't be able to discuss all the details of the possibility of time travel uh, in just five minutes. But uh, basically, my story is due to a tragedy that happened in my personal life when I was 10 years old. Uh, I was the oldest of four children. I grew up in the Bronx, New York. And my father, uh, who was the center of my life, was already a, uh, was a television repairman in the Bronx. And uh, he looked like he was very healthy. And he worked very hard. On, uh, and the thing is, is that even though he worked hard, he had plenty of time for the family. And the thing is, is that we didn't know he had a weak heart, and he died of suddenly of a massive heart attack when he was only 30, 30 years old, 33 years old. And, um, you know, it's hard for me to believe. You know, 33 is like... <laughs> he was a kid. I, I, he was a, a kid. Child, you yeah. know, still, still a young, young person. And um, I was 10, and it shattered my world. I mean, it turned it inside out. 
and after he died, I mean, I just really didn't care whether I lived or died. But he left me many gifts. I should mention that after he died, the family plunged into poverty, and I don't know exactly how my mother was able to pull us all through. Um, but by the grace of God, she did. But the thing is, is that um, among the gifts he left me was a love for reading. I love reading and love reading science fiction. And about a year after he died, when I was about 11, I came across H.G. Wells' book, The Time Machine. It was actually a classics illustrated version of it. But in it, it said that um, scientific people know very well that time is just a kind of space, and we can move forward and backward in time just as we can in space. And when I read those words, I mean, it was like manna from heaven. It was, it was, uh, it was a safety net. It, it told me that if I could figure out how to build a time machine, I might be able to go back into the past and see him again and maybe save his life. And so that became a passion of mine. I mean, I should say a hidden passion, because I was very depressed at that particular point. And even at 11, I was astute enough to realize it probably wasn't a good idea to tell people I wanted to build a time machine. So I kept it as kind of a secret. But the key here is that a couple of years later, I came across a popular book that opened up the real possibility. It was about Einstein. And Einstein's work shows that time travel really is a possibility, and that part would take too long for our short discussion. But just to tantalize people, scientific possibility of time travel is real, and we have been able to actually send things into the future, and we're working on the possibility of sending things into the past. It is it is remarkable. Uh, I mean, what what is so compelling about... Uh, your story, uh, Dr. Mallet, is not only the, the technical aspects, the theoretical uh, aspects, uh, but the, the human element uh, that, that you bring to it. Uh, and, I, and I can't wait um, to see you once again. And I know that people uh, who attend the Follow the Truth Summit on November the 16th are just going to be so inspired by your story. I want to get you a quick take uh, from you. Now, this story goes back earlier in the summer, but uh, further to your point about the possibility of time travel... Uh, physicists at the University of Queensland, Australia, simulated time travel. It was announced back in June using particles of light. The researchers achieved this by simulating the behavior of a single piece of light, a particle of energy, traveling on a closed time-like curve, which is a closed path in space-time. And uh, the, the report says that the work may help to understand the long-standing problem of how time travel could be possible in the quantum world and how the theory of quantum mechanics might change in the presence of closed time-like curves. So, uh, not that you necessarily need further vindication. I mean, your, your research is pretty rock-solid, but you must have been uh, pretty excited when, when, when this story broke back in June, I'm guessing. Well, I am on a number of different levels. Number one is the fact that um, this really this, it's a simulation, now, that's important to realize, but nevertheless, the thing is is that it does point to the real possibility of time travel. The other aspect, to me, is the fact that now it's out in the scientific community and being taken seriously. That, to me, is extremely important. When I was growing up, that was not the case. And for serious scientists to be engaged in this is something that, for me, is extremely exciting. And I'm, I'm very happy that's happening in my time. So, yes, it, it, it's really, you know, very exciting. So, we will see you in Oshawa at the Regent Theatre, November the 16th, 
That's uh, November the 16th this year, 2014, the Region Theatre, followthetruth.tv for more details. That's the website, followthetruth.tv, and to order tickets, 905-721-3399. And if uh, you're listening to this program, and if you use the code word ROSWELL, you'll receive, when you're ordering your tickets, use the code word ROSWELL, you'll you'll receive a 25% discount, 25% discount on your ticket order. 905-721-3399. And uh, Professor Mallet, thank you for spending a few moments with you, and I will see you November the 16th at the Regent Theatre. It was my pleasure, Richard, and I'm very much looking forward to seeing you and to doing the presentation. All right, stay well, my friend. You too. Joel Skousen. Standing by from World Affairs Brief is going to check in after this first break to discuss Ebola, James Foley, the Michael Brown shooting in Ferguson, Missouri, and more. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show. My name is Richard Serrett. Stay with us. Don't be afraid of the dark. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Joel Skousen is a political scientist by training, specializing in the philosophy of law and constitutional theory. He's also a designer of high-security residences and retreats. He was raised in Oregon and later served as a fighter pilot for the U.S. Marine Corps during the Vietnam era, prior to beginning his design firm specializing in high-security residences and retreats. And, of course, he's a regular contributor to The Conspiracy Show, the editor and publisher of World Affairs Brief, which is now back in publication, available as a weekly email newsletter and also, I believe, a monthly print edition. Joel Skousen, how are you, my friend? Good. Uh, just a correction. There is no print edition. It's all email ah, now. All email. All right. Yeah. And that is a weekly Right, that's correct. All right, before we uh, dive in, Joel, let's uh, let people know how they can subscribe to World Affairs Brief. Well, the World Affairs Brief is showcased on my website, www.worldaffairsbrief.com, and people can get a free sample issue prior to subscribing by simply emailing me at editor at worldaffairsbrief.com. I um, I haven't talked a lot about this on the air, uh, but I, I do want to get your your take on the Ferguson riots, uh, the, uh, the the tragic death of uh, Michael Brown, and uh, you draw an interesting comparison in your World Affairs brief, uh, comparing it to the uh, the Rodney King riots in Los Angeles. That's right. You know there are quite a bit of similarities. There's a lot of police uh, abuse. Uh, uh, in Los Angeles, uh, and granted, there's a lot of policing problems with the uh, black minority community in Los Angeles, as there is in the St. Louis area, which has a large uh, contingent of uh, African Americans there. And there are a lot of problem people, a lot of welfareism. Um, most uh, families are single parent families, uh, husbands abandoning their families, so a lot of teenage problems. Growing up, uh, getting involved in drugs and delinquency, et cetera. So, I, I'm not saying that this is. I mean, there is some justification for the fact that there's a higher percentage of uh, blacks involved in crime and problems in the St. Louis, in even in higher proportion to the 63% that they represent there in, in Ferguson. But it's also interesting that police tend to get a very callous and rough, aggressive view, uh, bad-mouthing all blacks. And, you know, despite the fact that there is a, a trend towards problems within this minority group, uh, or actually a majority group in, the, in this town, 
it never justifies police dropping their in, in necessity of making an individual decision and treating everyone with respect until there is definite evidence that we've got a problem person here. And uh, so it does look like, you know, when you start with uh, the F word and start, you know, get the F off the, the street and onto the sidewalk, you're starting off on the bad foot. And, uh, you know, there is some very interesting things that are bothersome about the later police accounts, which tend to justify the fact that Michael Brown, uh, the person, the unarmed teen who was killed, was a problem person, did have a record. But what's interesting is that these come from leaks, not from direct public statements from the police chief, and they didn't come in a timely manner. If you were going to avoid a riot, which is very, very obvious it's going to come when you've got a lot of resentment against police and you've got a lot of police resentment against the black community and their high crime rate, the way to defuse that is to say, hey, look, we have evidence to the police officer. This guy has a rap sheet, you know, quite long. It's not the innocent teenager you think. And he actually beat up the cops so bad that he's had a concussion. And, uh, you know, that statement right from the very beginning would have given at least some reason that, hey, there's there's definitely some both sides to the story that people ought to look for. If, if that no, were true, they, though, Joel, if, if the police officer had been throttled by Michael Brown prior to the shooting, you would have thought the police would have immediately uh, published photos uh, to, to, to prove that point, but they didn't. Absolutely, and that's why I'm saying this is very strange to then have... And we still haven't had any police official statement coming out and talking about the damage, supposed claim damage. You have a leak, and it has to come from the police department because only they have access to his previous rap sheet, and they published it. Only they have access to the witness testimony that they're claiming. And because it doesn't come from an official, we can't trust it. And so it doesn't solve anything. It just clouds the issue and looks as if the police are perhaps, as they have in many other cases, dropped evidence or falsified things after the fact in order to prove the case or, or defend the case of the shooting. And we know that this has happened many times in the United States, whether they drop drugs, whether they plant a gun or a knife on a person after they shoot an innocent person or a person who hasn't uh, uh, deserved that so that they can justify it. And so we got to be very, very careful with this kind of record of police abuse in the United States we don't just take their word unless they show us some evidence, and we have no evidence that any of this defense of the policeman's story is true. It hasn't come from any official stories, but from leaks. The other uh, interesting uh, thing that you point out in the latest edition of World Affairs Brief is the security camera in the convenience store where Michael Brown, we were told initially, uh, had stolen some cigars and began bullying the shopkeeper. But now in that video, it appears that Michael Brown put money on the counter and paid for those cigars. What can you tell us about that video? Well, and that's an interesting story in itself. First of all, the, the owner of the store has not filed charges. The police has not filed charges against uh, Damien, who was the accomplice, so-called accomplice or companion of Michael Brown. And obviously, if he were an accomplice to a robbery, they should have indicted him. He's still alive, and there's nothing to that. Store is impressing charges. Uh, they, he's been the store owner's been interviewed, and they basically say we're not going to discuss this. We want to maintain good relationship with the community. Now, this could be a fear factor. Basically, they're going to get boycotted if they speak out against Michael Brown. But the video does show that there's money on the counter. There may have been dis dispute about price and charging, about him wanting a discount or something. 
but it clearly wasn't enough for the for the store to file charges. What what part of the problem do you attribute to the unloading of excess military hardware into the police into local police departments? Well, this is the story that you know I focused on here. Is this this just backfired on the government? They had been unloading for free, you know. MRAP vehicles. These are mine-resistant vehicles that weigh tons, and they're damaging the streets. They're very costly to maintain. Uh, armored personnel carriers, special, you know, SWAT team gear, automatic weapons. Here you have this picture that I focused on that came out of CNN, where they were talking about the Ferguson story, and you have a dozen police officers in camouflage military uniforms, Kevlar helmets, face uh, shields, uh, gas masks on. Uh, knee pads, uh, armored vests, uh, ammo pouches, and automatic weapons with laser sights, all dozen pointing at one guy with his arms up, no weapon in his hand. I mean, this tells a thousand words, Richard. What, you know, you, you give this kind of military equipment to a bunch of police officers who then say, ooh, isn't this cool? We get to be like Rambo out there in the movies. We get to go running around clearing buildings and pointing weapons at everybody. It's general police. You never point loaded weapons at people unless there's a threat. And yet you have these dozen people pointing automatic weapons, I'm sure with safeties off, at an unarmed individual. And this is just symptomatic of what we have. You give people military equipment and you train them and they get all hyped up because I know the training. I'm a former military officer, former fighter pilot. I know what the military training is like. You go into high-intensity, close-quarter combat, clearing buildings, aiming weapons at everybody, shouting orders, get down, get down, and, and it's just not appropriate for police work. And then you take the fact that in the riots you have looters looting and the police do nothing. That's the same thing that happened in the Rodney King riots. They let people riot, and just like that in Ferguson, Missouri, people had to take arms and defend their own stores because the police were driving by and they weren't stopping any looters. I mean, boy, what kind of dichotomy is that, Richard? Automatic weapons pointed at, at protesters who are unarmed, and yet they do nothing with looters. Joel Skousen is with us, editor-publisher of World Affairs A Brief, and it is available as an, uh, a weekly email, and we'll tell you again later how you can subscribe. We're talking about uh, the uh, the tragic shooting of, of Michael Brown and the fallout uh, in Ferguson, Missouri. Things are starting to quiet down there, but um, the other aspect of this is, uh, aside, you know, the, the main thing, of course, here was the the Clearly, the, the unnecessary shooting uh, of of this um, individual, Michael Brown. But in the fallout, we have now journalists, reporters being arrested. We have uh, a police, uh, and this has been revealed in, in a video, pointing guns directly at protesters and members of the press, yelling, I'm going to kill you. I mean, this is yeah, clearly... F, using the F word, kill you. In other words, this type of... You know, this kind of military bad-mouthing of people is all present in the military, and I objected to it struggling in there. Nobody wanted to, you know, curtail that. And it gets over into the police forces, especially when they get this kind of militaristic training, and they have to go away. They're off the, the patrol beats. They're out, and the taxpayers and the local areas have to pay thousands of dollars to have these people trained at these military bases and come back all gung-ho with this kind of bad-mouthing, caustic language, which only inflames people. And then at journalists, we've had several journalists arrested, and you have this threatening of people and take their cameras away. I mean, the police are out of control in this country, and, of course, Obama, 
you know, says that I'm going to review this and have a review panel, well, you know darn well that his handlers are not going to let him do anything about it. This is just reacting to the public outrage at all of this militarization of equipment. And even the bill by one Democrat who comes out to try to say we're going to rein this military equipment in doesn't actually do anything like it. They're just going to study the fact and they're going to make people justify but they're not going to take this stuff away from people. Uh, I guess one of the things that I find curious is, or the questions that I have is, why did this seem to blow up in Ferguson, Missouri? Why? I mean, people argue back and forth, Michael Brown, he was a bully, he wasn't a bully. It doesn't matter. He doesn't deserve to be an unarmed individual, never deserves to be, uh, d- deserves that fate. But why, for example, didn't it happen in Washington, D.C. last year with that horrible situation with this poor mother, Miriam Carey, uh, who had a child, an infant in the back seat, and was shot uh, for absolutely no reason, no justification. Why didn't it happen in Washington, D.C.? Why does it happen in Ferguson, Missouri? Well, that's a really good question, Richard. You know, that uh, Washington, D.C., I said that we have video now of the authorities taking that child out of the car and then shooting the mother when she gets out of it. I mean, this is just so militaristic. This is so uh, unjustified. And, uh, you know, this should have been much worse than Ferguson in terms of it. Nobody came to her defense. And I guess because it was portrayed as if she was trying to crash through the White House. And she wasn't. She was trying to get out of there for some reason or another. And they had no business pursuing her in the way that they did, let alone shooting her, which they obviously did, to quiet her so she couldn't testify about how outrageous the whole thing was uh, and how she was just basically fleeing for her life because of the... um, It's hard to tell now that they're dead. As I say, dead men don't tell tales. But, you know, as I have said many times in my World Affairs News that are encountering a lot of this hype on the Internet about foreign troops, time and again, false reports of hundreds of thousands of Chinese troops on the other side of the border in Mexico or in Canada waiting to invade the United States and declare martial law. And that, you know, this, these reports are bogus. The militarization of police, frankly, and I hate to say this, but this is the way that the U.S. is going to take down dissidents. And they're practicing using that militarization on minorities and majority minorities in, in these cities, which are a tinderbox. And it could happen again in Washington, D.C., and it probably will in other black areas because police are getting more aggressive. And forget about foreign troops. They've got enough sluggish police being trained at the local level that they're going to take down dissidents using the, the typical uh, blocked-in free speech areas. Uh, we're, we've lost a great deal of our liberty in the United States despite the strongest constitution against it in the world and uh, we're seeing it happen it happened in the Boston Marathon bombing where you have people routed out of their houses with hands over the head without a warrant and, and APCs or armored personnel carrier ram- rampaging through the streets all because of what? A couple of fugitives loose there have been fugitives loose in other towns before and you haven't had this kind of militarization response Well, it's only a matter of time before there's another Michael Brown incident, another Ferguson, Missouri, and uh, we'll have to watch and wait as that unfolds. Uh, Listen, we'll uh, take a time out, come back, and I want to get your take on the the horrific beheading of American journalist James Foley and whether that's going to be used as a new provocation for war. Joel Skousen, editor, publisher, World Affairs Brief, right here on The Conspiracy Show. Don't go away. When you look at the sky, ever wonder if someone's looking back? This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. 
And welcome back. Joel Skousen stays with us, the editor-publisher of World Affairs Brief. Uh, the beheading of James Foley, horrific uh, incident. And uh, my question to you, Joel, is are... Um, is the U.S. and its NATO allies going to to use this incident uh, as some sort of a provocation for war? Well, they're already doing so, Richard. And frankly, I'm not buying this as a real video. I mean, uh, as a real. Uh, in other words, there's something. There's many things very, very wrong with this video. You think it might be a hoax? It might be a hoax. Well, it's too. It's too harsh to say a hoax in the sense that I think Foley's dead. I think he was killed. But the way in which it is presented is totally a fraud and a hoax. This was not a group of jihadists killing them because there's, in all other beheadings, virtually 100%, there's a group of jihadists yelling Akbar or Allah Akbar, and uh, they use a big, heavy sword to behead. They never use a knife. I mean, I don't mean to be graphic and things, but you can't behead a person with a knife. You can't get through the spine and all of that. You know, you can slit their throat, but you can't behead them. And that's why it doesn't show the actual beheading in the in the media. So it shows, you know, the head propped up on the body laying on the ground. But something happened between the time because all of the beheadings have shown, you know, the beheading. But here's the real problem. The real problem is that his entire, Foley's entire speech condemning and blaming the U.S. for his death doesn't make sense. He refers to the fact that I'm going to die and it's the U.S. fault that I'm going to die. So he, that's just as this is an unwilling person. He knows he's going to die. Why go through with the speech? The only reason you go through a speech is because you're trying to buy favor and stay alive. This guy knows he's going to die, all right? So why give the speech? So we can come to the other conclusion. Well, he had to have actually turned the corner and become in favor of ISIS and against the United States. But there's a difference between doing that, then the second question arises, then why kill him? If he's on your side now, why are you going to kill him? Well, you're going to make him a martyr. That means that he had to agree to be a martyr, and that means he had to be much more than just intellectually turning the corner and saying, yeah, I guess my country's wrong. To agree to be a martyr means you've got to be a dyed-in-the-wool jihadist. There's nothing in his background that even hints at that possibility. And so I'm left with the consequence that he, one, without the proper background, you got an English-speaking guy who's doing the beheading. He's not using a sword to behead. It doesn't show the actual beheading. My best guess is that, you know, the U.S. claimed that they did a rescue attempt. Let's suppose that U.S. or British agents actually did a rescue and then said, now, before you go back to the United States, we need to stage something. We need to stage it to really blacken the eye of ISIS, you know, to make it look as evil as it is, because we really need to get public opinion roused up in the United States and Britain about this. And clearly the government, you know, doing just that. And I can see them talking him into giving this speech. and said, you know, he doesn't even flinch when the guy brings the knife around towards the neck. You know, it's just perfectly calm as if he knows that it's not going to happen. And then it does happen after the camera cuts or however it happens. We are not shown what happens. But it could be very possible that, in fact, he was betrayed by the British agent, you know, who talked him into giving this particular speech. And don't dismiss this out of hand. Remember, the chief counterintelligence agent of the Irish Republican Army, the IRA, turned out to be a British agent, and he was personally sent he personally sent several British spies to their deaths who were caught by the IRA. 
So you can't tell me that just because he's a British agent, he's not going to kill one of his own. These people are ruthless. They will do whatever orders they're given. And, you know, as I have gone on print in the World Affairs Brief, 9-11 was a government operation from beginning to end, including the hire of the terrorists. If they killed 3,000 people, and they did it at Pearl Harbor as well, these people are ruthless that we're dealing with, and they can dispatch a reporter if it's going to gin up a uh, another war on terror. And frankly, Richard, I think al-Qaeda has lost its usefulness. People are tired of hearing everybody blamed and everybody being al-Qaeda. They got a new boogeyman now, and it's going to gin up another war against Syria. What's uh, very interesting about this uh, video, and you point this out in your latest uh, World Affairs Brief uh, newsletter, is that the uh, the British uh, Counterterrorism Command, uh, or the MPS, Metropolitan Police Service, they're actually saying that even viewing this video, or viewing a video of a journalist being beheaded, can be considered an act of terror, as well as downloading it. That sounds rather uh, ludicrous, doesn't it, on the surface? That just viewing... What it, really, what it really shows, Richard, is that they don't want people scrutinizing this very carefully. I think they see that, hey, there's a lot of holes in what they produced. But, you know, the law doesn't actually say anything about viewing being an act of terror. That's just their interpretation to scare the public. The law doesn't say that. And so this shows that there is a direct attempt by the government in Britain to manipulate the news. And I also pointed out, they've said, you know, there are thousands of Brits and the Germans and the French government said that over 1,300 of our people have gone to work. How do they know to be able to count those kinds of numbers? I mean, they couldn't give me a name of five, unless they were probably five British agents, which we know they've got to have infiltrated ISIS, because we trained in Jordan. A lot of the ISIS uh, fighters and things. Why wouldn't we have infiltrated as well? Exactly. All right, let's get an Ebola update uh, when we come back. Joel Skousen stays with us. Editor, publisher, World Affairs Brief. Back with more of The Conspiracy Show. My name is Richard Serrett. The truth is not out there. It's right here. The Conspiracy Show. All right, let's uh, let's talk about uh, Ebola. Uh, both of the, uh, the U.S. citizens... Uh, Brantley and Wright Bowl uh, that were involved in charity medical work in Africa. They were they contracted Ebola. They were brought back uh, to uh, Emory Hospital in in Georgia, and uh, they were given this experimental drug. We're told called ZMAP, Joel, and it now appears that they both have sufficiently recovered and they've been allowed to leave the hospital. But uh, is there any evidence that this this drug ZMAP actually uh, can be credited with saving these people? None whatsoever, um, and that's why there's you know false hope for a lot of people in Africa who aren't being given the drug. Uh, but I personally think that uh, I mean when you look at how this uh, disease uh, matures and, and how what it does to the body, you know they have terrible headaches, uh, extreme body weight loss, muscle pain, uh, sore throat, so sore that they can't even swallow their own saliva, saliva don't want to eat anything, completely lose appetite, lose weak or become weak in body, uh, lose body mass. So what I'm saying is I don't think these two would have recovered in the hot, humid climates of which they're down there. I think the humidity, the the contagious atmosphere that's down there really prohibits a lot of, uh, uh, of recovery. The body's immune system, you know, in many cases, if you're healthy and strong enough, will fight this thing off, but only if you come back to a fairly sterile, 
environment. So there's no evidence, you know, that this uh, drug is going to be uh, effective at all, and it's going to take a lot more time to do that. Uh, supposedly, the virus kills 60 to 90 percent of those uh, that it infects, but but you're suggesting that it, it's it needn't be that deadly again if the person infected is placed in a in a sterile environment uh, and and um, is given access to, to, to fresh water and and uh, and food uh, to recover some of their lost body mass. They their their immune system would likely be able to combat this. Maybe not in all cases, but the, the recovery rate would be significantly higher. Yes, I'm convinced that that's true. And I think, you know, the CDC has been fudging the facts by saying this cannot be contracted except with sharing of body fluids. I don't think that's true at all. There's far too many health workers now infected, even using full body suits. Uh, so it clearly can be uh, transferred from, uh, you know, uh, contagion in the air uh, if you're in close contact for a long time and these people in these body suits and 100 degree plus humid temperatures uh, just lose a lot of body fluid just trying to wear those suits and so they wear themselves down their immune system wears down and they get infected so you know it's very interesting as i pointed out they're crying for foreign health workers to come to liberia guinea sierra leone and now the congo where it's spreading and uh, they just can't get anybody to come down there. It's not enough to be charity, religious or not. Uh, everybody's really wary now. And they say that Brantley and Whiteball should go back because they've got an immunity now. But I'll tell you, I'll bet they're very, very reluctant to do so, knowing the debilitating circumstances of working in those full-body anti-contamination suits. There was some discussion when these patients, these uh, American um workers were brought back to the United States uh, that some nefarious agency was going to use this opportunity uh, since they had, you know, the Ebola virus now within the borders of the United States to perhaps, I don't know, weaponize it. Uh, what are your thoughts on that? Well, you know, the CDC already has a patent on the Ebola virus or at least a particular strain for it. And you can't patent anything that's naturally occurring. So it means they had to have developed this in a laboratory. And whether or not they were going to get a handle on trying to, you know, leverage this into a vaccine or whether or not it was weaponized for military use, we really don't know. But clearly the U.S. and many other governments of the world are dealing with weaponized bacteria and viruses in order to, um, you know, use it as biological warfare. And I wouldn't put it past our government to do that. And so... It's very sad to say this, but we really can't rely on what our government tells us. There are many, many secret programs and many experimentations they've done on people that are heinous crimes really against humanity, including the use of vaccines to create uh, abortions within women. That happened in the Philippines, and they were purposely doped, doped with an abortifican. And um, that's something they've done in Africa as well. There are statements by the very elite that they believe in massive depopulation of the world through war or through other means. And so we have to be very, very careful not to rely on government's assurances that they're in control of this. I'm, I'm fascinated by uh, the, the CDC's patent on uh, the Ebola virus. As you say, you cannot take out a patent on a naturally occurring uh, a virus or um, anything that's naturally occurring. That's uh, right. So, which would tend to suggest that this particular strain of Ebola that they have a patent on has been manufactured in a lab. 
uh, I mean, is there, why is there not an outcry about this? Why are, why is the mainstream uh, press not investigating the fact that there is a patent for the Ebola virus? Well, you know, the mainstream press has a very nasty habit of parroting almost whatever government spokes are doing and almost never criticizing. And if they do criticize, it's a very mild one. They bring it up and they never repeat it again. Remember, the, the press knows that you can create any any amount of driving force within the American people if you make it a drumbeat in the news. Mentioning it once or twice in passing won't do it. In fact, if you mention it calmly, it doesn't upset. When you make it a drumbeat, then people have got upset. So the media knows how to put out a little bit of truth here and there. They may mention this uh, patent, but they'll never talk about or do a special on weaponizing bacteria and how deeply involved the U.S. has been in so that people stay asleep. My understanding is the U.S. government has had this patent on the Ebola virus since, uh, I think it's 2009. Uh, does that mean that they already have a vaccine for it? Uh, and if so, I mean, if they're withholding that vaccine, that is, that's a crime against humanity. Well, you know, we can never trust anything the government says about vaccines. Um, they have just so many problems, so much cover-up, uh, so little testing done on vaccines, so many positive assurances. Um, I wouldn't believe them even if they said they had a vaccine. But I can tell you this about biological warfare. The reason they do specialized strains different from Ebola, regular Ebola, is so that they can develop a disease to which they do have a vaccine so that they can protect those in high government positions if they should ever unleash a bacteriological warfare agent that they can be protected. And that makes it an even a more heinous crime. Uh, Joel, every uh, every week uh, in the World Affairs Brief, you leave readers with a survival tip. Uh, what, do you have, what do you have for us this week? Well, we do. We try to, you know, give people a preparedness tip so that, in fact, a lot of our subscribers who have heard only bad news for many, many years really like this aspect of the World Affairs Brief. We've talked about everything from uh, ham radio to how to do medical and suture packs, and uh, this week we talked about edible plants, um, and, and we always try to give some links. It's just a, sh- a short two or three paragraphs, half a page at the most. Uh, just to lead people in a direction where they can do some more research to increase their knowledge about things. We're real big believers that when there's a very difficult time in war someday and uh, you just won't be able to get medical drugs if you've been relying on that, you've got to know natural antibiotics, natural medicinal plants. And so that's what we focused on this week to try to let people know what they can, you know, find in their own neighborhood. Uh, There's a lot of bacterial-resistant diseases MRSA, for one, a staphylococcus uh, disease that is completely resistant now to drugs. And uh, if you get it, you know, you can lose a leg unless you know some natural treatments and things to get around it. Uh, you also focus on, on dandelion uh, uh, this week. And uh, in, in my, um, uh, my in-law, my mother-in-law, is uh, of Greek uh, descent, or she is Greek, rather. Uh, you don't have to tell the Greeks about the uh, the benefits of, of dandelion. I mean, you, you see them harvesting them along the uh, in parks and in their backyards and and, uh, and cooking them. Uh, so, what what uh, what usages what uses rather for for dandelion uh, are you suggesting this week? Well, dan- dandelion is a real edible plant, and uh, it's best done with the young tender leaves once they get full grown, they're quite bitter. They still won't hurt you even though they're bitter, they're just not as tasty, but mixed with other greens and things, 
They really are an excellent nutritious addition to salads. They have full of antioxidants and vitamins. Uh, so this is a very, very good plan uh, to add. And it's a simple one, and it's ubiquitous. It's everywhere in the world. And uh, once again, uh, Joel, how can people subscribe to World Affairs Brief? World Affairs Brief uh, is, as I say, showcased on my website, worldaffairsbrief.com. There's a big red subscribe button right under the synopsis of the current brief. But as we've said, and it tells you on the website, uh, you can get a free sample issue before you subscribe by simply emailing me at editor at worldaffairsbrief.com. And there's a lot of free information on the website, links to my other website, joelshausen.com where I published my three major books on uh, high-security architecture, strategic relocation, and other ways in which people can prepare should we not be able to retain our liberty, should these globalists you know, bring the world down upon us in war and other things, how to prepare against that eventuality. And uh, what are you working on for your next edition of World Affairs Brief? Well, I'm really working on the big story, which is about Syria, the U.S. preparing to use this ISIS crisis, which they have created as an excuse to going back into Syria with a no-fly zone, with control of the airspace. Um, and, um, and, you know, I've always projected that this would be a backdoor, that, that the U.S., you know, was stopped from invading Syria and using uh, air power, as they did in Libya, uh, to take out Gaddafi. They were going to do that same thing to Assad, um, but they got stopped by Kerry's incautious remark at a London press conference where a reporter asked him, how, how can Syria avoid this inevitable attack from the United States? Oh, simple. He could give up his chemical weapons, and yeah, that would stop it. And bam, Russia and Syria jumped on that and said, we agree, we give them up. And so the U.S. has been stuck ever since, and they've had to even stop harassing Iran because they wanted to take Syria out before they attack Iran, and now with Syria on the, on the chill, they had to put the Iran attack on the chill. But now I think ISIS is giving them an excuse since they're based out of Syria to go back into Syria. They're making contingency war plans. I'm going to be covering that in uh, Friday's World Affairs Brief of what the state of that future attack on Syria is going to be like. All right. Always um, uh, fascinating speaking with you, Joel. I appreciate your time again tonight. Joel Skousen, World Affairs Brief. Thank you, Richard. Good to be with you. All right. Uh, I want to uh, draw to your attention uh, a story that I've posted on richardserrett.com up in the uh, the slide carousel. It's about the effects of fluoride on consciousness and the will to act. Uh, according to the uh, the, the story uh, from consciousreporter.com, new evidence has linked fluoride and other chemicals to brain disorders. What other unknown effects might this industrial byproduct added to our water supply have? An examination of water fluoridation's shadowy history reveals potentially disturbing ramifications for human consciousness. Recent research has brought the controversial practice of water fluoridation back into the spotlight, revealing links between water fluoridation and brain disorders, particularly in regard to its effect on children. Troublingly, uh, the report found that side effects do not only come from direct ingestion by children, but also from higher levels of chemicals, such as fluoride in expectant mothers' blood and urine which was linked to brain disorders and lower IQs in their children. In many cases, the changes triggered can be permanent. This evidence flies right in the face of spurious claims by skeptics that ingestion of fluoride in low concentrations has no harmful effects on our health. You can find that, that story 
uh, in the slide carousel at richardserrett.com. The effects of fluoride on consciousness and the will to act. As always, follow the truth.